0: Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, as you can see, we start a new series going through the, the, through the book of Ruth. And Ruth is one of those books that's really easy to sort of kind of skip over. It's a short book. Uh, it's also found after some very difficult books. So like, you know, if you start your New Year's reading plan, you, you know, you plow through Genesis, your love loving Exodus, and then you get to some more difficult books, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So if you actually manage to get through all of that, then you get through Joshua and Judges, and then Ruth. And so Ruth is, is, is one of those books that's often kind of skipped over. Many people um, focus on, uh, the, there's a love story in it between Ruth and Boaz, and that's certainly a part of the story, but the story is really, I mean, it's filled with sorrow and anguish and suffering, And it's about kind of holding on to faith and hope when it doesn't seem like there's that much to hold on to. And ultimately, the book is about the chesed of God. Now, chesed is a Hebrew word we've talked about in the past. It's difficult to translate. But to suffice to say for now, chesed deals with faithfulness and love expressed like with concrete action. And so although this book is filled with suffering and anguish and sorrow, it's about the chesed of God in the midst of all of that. Now, before we get started, I'd like to give some introductory notes regarding the book of Ruth. First, the placement. As I previously mentioned, Ruth, as found in our kind of English Bibles, is towards the beginning. It comes right after the Torah. Again, the Torah is the first five books of the Bible Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, keep going, Joshua, Judges, and then Ruth. So very early in the English Bible, and the reason for that is that's when it takes place historically, roughly 1,200 years before the time of Jesus in the time of the judges. So it's there for historical reasons. There is, however, something interesting that occurs with one of the Hebrew traditions regarding the ordering of the books of the Bible. So there's a tradition that puts the book of Ruth right after the book of Proverbs, now, if you're familiar with the book of Proverbs, you know that the book of Proverbs ends in a certain way. At the end of the book of Proverbs, there's Proverbs 31, and at the last half of Proverbs 31, there is this depiction of what's often called the Proverbs 31 woman, and it's this like, ideal version of like, wisdom embodied and personified in a woman. And it lists and it describes her. It says like her ways are, are to, be, to be honored. And so if you think about this, it's very interesting that In that ordering of the Bible, you would read through Proverbs, get to this Proverbs 31, this ideal woman who's like the personification of wisdom, and the very next thing you would read is the story of a woman named Ruth. And so there might be something there that that tradition is trying to tell us. Additionally, the book of Ruth, you feel a gravitational pull of Torah, those first five books of the Bible. First five books of the Bible are filled with a lot of good things, but they're also filled with a lot of like bad things that happen. And as you read through Ruth, it almost feels as if the story, the narrative is trying to resolve many of the bad stuff that happened in the first five books of the Bible. And the third opening note is the book of Ruth um, in the Jewish faith is associated with a Jewish holy day, holiday called Shavuot, which is the festival of weeks. Now, when Shavuot occurs, the book of Ruth in its entirety is read aloud to the community. Uh, and additionally, additionally, Shavuot is also associated with the, the giving of the Torah, the law, those first five books to Moses at Sinai. So, before we go further, like, kind of connect these dots, there is a deep relationship between the book of Ruth and this festival of weeks, Shavuot, and that's deeply connected with the giving of the law, the giving of the covenant from God to his people, Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai. And you take all of that with us, and let's dive into the book of Ruth. We're going verse by verse for the next few weeks. This is how It begins. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Okay, now this is one of those times in the Bible where it's really easy just to read one verse and sort of move on, like, okay, there's the introduction, they're telling us, like, when it occurred, what location we're at, but this geography, I don't know the geography, Moab and Bethlehem and all this stuff, and it's just really easy to get into the rest of the story. However... What the author is doing here is opening up an entire narrative world because almost every other word in this introduction has like a massive history and story behind it. So almost picture like a computer program if you were to have some software where if you hovered over one of these words, new windows would pop open with like the backstory, the origin story, here's some historical details. That's what would occur for the ancient readers. So what I wanna do is sort of walk us through this beginning and get as close as we possibly can to the feel of this book to how it would have felt for its first readers, the ancient readers that would have read this originally. Because when they just read this, like worlds are opening up. So let's go through this. In the days when the judges ruled. Okay. So what's the days of the judges? Well, that's the the time of the book of judges. This is why, as I mentioned, Ruth comes after the book of judges in our English Bibles. So it takes place then, roughly 1,200 years before Jesus. And in one sense, that's a historical note, but you need to know there's much more there. Because the days of the judges, that's a time of complete political, spiritual, social upheaval, and chaos. I mean, it's like brutal times. It's so brutal that the book of Judges, like, it's usually when you're reading like a children's Bible, you're getting some stories, that are included. And then what happens when you get to the book of Judges, is like one of these. And you try to get as fast as you can to the beginning of Samuel. Now, some of you may be saying, no, no, the, in the children's Bible, they, I mean, at least they include the story of Samson. And I'll say, yes, they do, but they, for, for the most part, they get it wrong. They're not telling that story right in the children's Bible. Uh, there's, there's a lot going on in that Samson story and it's doing a lot of other things than we've kind of initially been led to believe. So that's a, that's a sermon series for another day. But Judges is brutal, brutal, okay? First term. Then it says there's a famine in the land. And that immediately, you go, okay, so things are really bad, there's not enough food, but you have to understand, for the ancient reader, if there's famine in the land, this has a direct connection with the the state of the current faithfulness of the people of Israel. In the book of Deuteronomy, God says to his covenant people, he tells them the terms of the covenant, and he says, Israel, you are my people and as you live in the promised land, if you obey me, you worship me and don't go after other gods, then the land is going to produce for you. The land, Things will go well for you as you are in the land. But if you disobey, you worship other gods, then there will be judgment upon the land. And so one of the direct listings of a covenant blessing of faithfulness while you're in the land, as Israel's in the land, is that there would be a lot of food. There would be abundance. So, When an ancient Israelite reads that there's a famine in the land, they immediately go, this is a time of deep, deep rebellion. There is rebellion and unfaithfulness in the land. Then it says a man from Bethlehem. And in one sense, that's just a location but that Hebrew word is doing a lot more there because Bethlehem is composed of two Hebrew words, Beit, which is house, and Lechem, which is bread. So put it together, Beit and Lechem, and you get house of bread. Now, do you see the irony? Like, look what the author's doing. There is a famine in the house of bread. As I make like, that's like saying there's there's no cakes in the bakery. See what's going on here? There is a famine in the house of bread, and there's further geographic detail. We're in Judah. Now, why is that important? Because originally it just says in the land, but now we get a specific location, Judah. And Judah is in the promised land, which we already mentioned was supposed to, because of the covenant, be a land of plenty. But furthermore, Israel's called the promised land because it's the land of promise and plenty. It's called the land of milk and honey, like this is it. This is as close to heaven as you can get. So in the land of promise, the land of plenty, There is a famine in the house of bread and we are in the time of judges. So the first readers would have been like, this is bad, man. This is really, really, really bad. This story, probably not gonna be a good story. Probably gonna be a tragedy. And then the last geographic note, uh, this man goes to sojourn in the country of Moab. Now at that point, the first readers would have went, Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? He went to Moab? Why would any sane Israelite go to a place as despicable as Moab? And so, for us, we need to know why they would have had that reaction. And it's because Moab has an origin story that is taking place all throughout the Torah, the first five books. And so there's there's details in it that would make the original reader go this is insane. So first off about Moab, where is it introduced? Genesis chapter 19, a man by the name of Lot flees the destruction of Sodom and he flees to the mountains with his two daughters. Now I won't go into all the details, but suffice to say there is a sexually immoral incestuous relationship that occurs between the daughters and the husband, the daughters uh, give dad wine, he becomes intoxicated and there's this sexually moral incestuous relationship that occurs. Both daughters get pregnant. The daughter, the first daughter, names her child Moab, which is similar, if not nearly identical to the Hebrew word words Moab, which literally means from father. So there's a child that's conceived by that sinful relationship and she names him from father. The other daughter does the same and gives him a similar name and this is the birth from Genesis 19 of the Moabites and the Ammonites. So that's the background story. Already it's a bad start, that's Genesis 19. Then in the book of Numbers chapter 22, the king of Moab, Balak, hires a diviner to pronounce curses upon the people of Israel. Numbers 25, the women of Moab begin sexually immoral relationships with the men of Israel. And as they are committing sexual immorality, they invite the Israelite men to worship and sacrifice to the gods of Moab. And there's a host of those, uh, Baal and Kemesh being a couple of them. And so the Israelite men then participate in worship and sacrifice to the gods of the Moabites, which there's a good chance from a historical perspective at this time period that would have involved abominations like human slash child sacrifice. And then finally in Judges chapter three, the people of Moab uh, defeat the Israelites and oppress them. And because of all of that, Genesis 19 Numbers 22, Numbers 25, and Judges 3, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 23, God gives this verdict. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord even to the 10th generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. If you are a Moabite, even to the 10th generation, you cannot enter the assembly of the Lord. Now, you have to... Allow that to hit, because that sounds kind of harsh at first, right? Like, these children's 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 children can't even come and worship the God of Israel? They're just cut off, even to the 10th generation? Now, what you have to do is let the Bible say what it wants to say. Immediately, you can start saying, oh, I don't like that. Um, that's not right, like, let the Bible speak on its own terms. Trust the Bible, it always knows what it's doing. And so you just have to sit there with this pronouncement in Deuteronomy 23 that a Moabite cannot enter into the assembly of the Lord even to the 10th generation. That's how wicked, that's how vile the people of Moab are seen. Which is gonna make the story of a young woman named Ruth really interesting because here's a little plot reveal. She's a Moabite. Let's keep going. Now feel this. In the days when the judges ruled, there's a famine in the land and a man from Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife was Naomi and the names of the two sons were Malhon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went to the country of Moab and remained there. Some interesting notes with the names. The man's name is Elimelech. Elimelech in Hebrew means God is king. So, your expectation for a man named God as king is that he would faithfully serve his God. But the man named God as king is leaving the promised land, leaving the covenant, and going to Moab, which again, Moab would be seen as like, you know, we might call something like Las Vegas Sin City, but like do that times 10. This is Moab. Why Why would you go there? So God is king, Elimelech, takes his wife, Naomi, which Naomi means something like pleasant or sweet. And then it says the names of their two sons are Malhon and Kilion. Malhon means something like tired or sickly or like sick unto death. Um, and then Kilion is something like um, almost finished. really close to the end type of thing and they went into the country of Moab and they remained there so it's bad enough that they fled the promised land but they just remained there they adopt the ways of Moab but Elimelech the husband of Naomi died and she was left with her two sons they took moabite wives the name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years and both Malone and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, it's important to note that for Israelites, part of the covenant was that you would never marry someone who worshiped other gods. So when it says you, in Israel, you can't marry a Moabite, it says specifically, it says attach that because then you will be tempted to worship other gods. It's like you're gonna be brought into the worship of Moabite deities and God is completely opposed to that. That's actually what we see happen throughout the scriptures is is there's a beginning of worship to other gods. Now what I'd like to do is review these first five verses but what I've done is I've replaced many of the words with the conceptual word that you need to see. And so, Sometimes you can't just see the word judges. You need to understand sort of like the narrative that should be coming to your mind when you would read that, especially if we're gonna try to get as close as to the ancient reader as possible. So if we were to read Ruth one through five, it might read something like this. In the days of, not the judges, but extreme unfaithfulness, there was a famine in the land of promise and plenty. A man of the house of bread And Judah went to sojourn in Sin City times 10. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was God as king and the name of his wife, Sweet. And the names of his two sons were sick son and dead son. (laughs) They were Epaphrathites from the house of bread in Judah. They went into the country of Sin City and disobediently remained there. But God as king, the husband of Sweet died and she was left with her two sons. They took women, birthed in sin. They are Moabite women. That would be the, 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 the perspective of the readers. Women birthed in sin is wise. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years and both sick son and dead son died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, do you feel a little bit more with that introduction? It's not just, oh, there's a famine in the times of judges and we're going to Moab for a bit. There's like a whole narrative world that's, that's the foundation of this story. Now, what I wanna do before we move forward is return to this woman, Naomi, because it's really easy to skip over, but this woman has just gone through the worst of the worst. Like, it's, it's unimaginable what she has just experienced. There is misery upon misery. First, she experiences a Famine. And, you know, we're so accustomed to using language like, I'm hungry and I didn't eat lunch, so I'm starving, that we, that we use those words so haphazardly they lose all meaning. But when there's a famine, this woman would have seen friends and loved ones literally wither away to skin and bones and die. Seeing friends and loved ones die slow, horrific deaths. That's what, that's what she saw. And it wasn't just to people on the outside. That death hit home. She loses her husband and her two sons. And this is pain unthinkable. It's, it's many of us have experienced that type, that type of loss. It's a loss that you can't, you, you just walk with a limp for the rest of your life. And her husband is gone. Now her two sons are gone. And furthermore, she's outside of her land. And this one is different for modern people to get, but For an ancient Israelite, to be outside of the land, to be exiled, removed from your people is a punishment that is seen oftentimes as worse than death. And in fact, that's the way the Torah describes it, like exile is the ultimate punishment. And so she is now in Moab and her family is dead. She is cut off from her people, her land and her God. Also, there's the issue of barrenness because she's reached an age where she most likely won't have any more kids, but then her sons did not have any kids before they passed away. And so, as many of you know, when you are, when you are trying to, to have child, there's a pain that comes with that not coming to fulfillment. So there was that natural pain, but more so what needs to be pointed out is that in the ancient world, a barren womb was often seen as like a curse, a curse from God sometimes. And so your community would be like, what kind of sinful person are you that God wouldn't open your womb to give you life? And certainly for, for Ruth and Orpah and Naomi in this case, it's like, well, you went, you left Israel and your son's married Moabite women. This is the curse of God. So there is famine and death, and exile. Barren wombs and the social stigma that that brought. And then lastly, there's three widows. Now this time period, in the time of the judges, you do not wanna be a widow. Being a widow or a widower is always extremely painful. But for a woman at this time period, that meant there was no one to protect you, no one to care for you. And it wasn't like it is now where you can just go and and find a job and maybe try to, to make some money. Like these women, there is no job, there is no work. These women are forced into the care and mercy of family members or they are forced to beg or forced to be put in a situation where they take up prostitution or occupations that would be normally never thought of. Now the first option is to find family that would care for you but the majority of the family has just died and more importantly if Naomi goes back to Israel she has no idea what friends or family remain from the famine she has no ideas even if they do remain how will they treat the woman who left Israel and lived in Moab whose sons married Moabite women so this is a story of of desperation and destitution and so Naomi is experiencing what we might call the shattering. And what I mean by that is picture a vase or a bowl that's, that's accidentally dropped on the ground and it just shatters. It cracks in 10 different places. The vase is meant to hold water. It has a purpose. It's meant to hold water. You're meant to put a flower into it. But when you break at that level, it's not like, oh, there's a little chip that's occurred and it still works. It's, it's a fracturing of the structure itself. And this is different. This is fundamentally different than the times in life when you go through trials and tribulation, and in the midst of those trials and tribulations, you are able to tell yourself things like, I'm going through some deep, deep stuff, and um, I could see what God is trying to do, and I'm learning, and I'm glad he has brought this trial in my life because I could see all the ways I'm growing, and what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Like, You you know what I'm talking about. You've gone through things, painful things, and even in the moment, you're able to see what God is doing and you're able to see what you're learning and how you're becoming stronger, right? That is is normal. Everyone has those experiences. But there are also things in life that hit you much harder. And it's not as if, oh, there's a little chip, but I could still hold water. I could still see what God is doing. I mean, they hit you so hard that you fracture. You crack. Think of the glasses example that we've used in the past. You have a a set of lenses on and this is how you see the world. And it's as if someone rips them off and breaks those glasses so that you no longer even look at the world in the same way. And so when this shattering happens, it's not like there's a trial of tribulation and I know I'm gonna come out on the other side and I'm learning some things. It is a complete fracturing of who you are. And you say, I have no ground to stand on. How I see the world, how I think the world operates, it it was all wrong. And you don't know what you believe about the world, yourself, your loved ones, you don't even know what you believe about God anymore. Because the shattering, the fracturing of who you are is so painful, you feel as if, "I, I don't even have ground to stand on. Do you know what I'm talking about? There's a difference between a trial and tribulation where in the moment you're able to, to see the good. But there are some things you had no idea what they could do to you, how bad it, it could hurt, how, how painful it could be. And you try to look around at the world and it doesn't even make sense anymore. And this is why we appreciate The Bible because there's a raw nature to the Bible. It doesn't sugarcoat things. This story isn't like saying, you know, keep your eyes on God and there'll be little bumps along the road, but everything's gonna always work out. Like, that's not reality. Like, I'll put in perspective right now, presently, right now, at this moment, There are countless Christians who are extremely faithful to the Lord and they are persecuted, dying alone in prison cells. The persecuted church, it's it's, it's all around the world. There are faithful Christians who are suffering immensely and many of them will die alone. And the Bible doesn't shy away from that, doesn't hide from that, doesn't pretend that that's not real. It goes into that type of darkness and says, we'll address it. We'll talk, we'll tell stories in the midst of that type of darkness. Doesn't sugarcoat these things. And so the story of Ruth is so far very, this is brutal. Famine, death, exile, barrenness, widowhood, forced to beg. Goes on, then she arose with her daughter-in-law to return from the country of Moab for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. Now this is fascinating. This is the first good thing that happens in the book of Ruth. So far, it's nothing but misery upon misery, bad news upon bad news, but the first mention of anything good occurring is tied up with the mention of the Lord. And you see the Lord is in capital here. This is the Hebrew covenantal name, the name of the covenant, Yahweh, with his people. The God of Israel, he's visited his people. The first good news you get is that God showed up. And he's given them food. And the author of Ruth wants to draw your attention to this because in Hebrew there's alliteration. That giving them food is letet lechem lehem. All the three words sound the same. They have that emphasis with L and H. And that alliteration draws your your, your mind to the attention that God is the first mention of good. Look at this alliteration. God is visiting his people and he's giving them food. But when I said that Hebrew phrase, you probably heard the word lechem, which is the same word that we talked about earlier, bet lechem, house of bread. So although it's translated he's given them food, he gave them bread, He gave them bread. Now, if you're a reader for the first time of this book and all you have at this point in history is the Torah, like all you have is the first five books of the Bible and you see that there was no food and that God was gracious and he showed up and was among his people and gave them bread, what story might come to mind? Well, if all you have is the first five books of the Bible, you go, oh yeah, we're Israelites. We were wandering around in the desert without food. But God was with us and he gave us bread from heaven. He gave us bread from heaven. Now it's important to note here. Remember, as I mentioned, in Deuteronomy it says that if Israel is obedient and they worship God, then the land will produce food for them. But if they're disobedient, then there will be punishment. So, Israel, for all intents and purposes, if there's a famine in the land, that means they've broken covenant with God, they've disobeyed the terms of the covenant, which means it's perfectly just and right for God to bring justice to Israel. But rather than God visiting and showing up with justice, God visits his people and gives them what? The opposite of what the covenant said they ought to receive. He gives them bread. Which we might say, sounds something like um, a, a demonstration of faithfulness, love, and loyalty in concrete action, which sounds a lot like chesed, chesed. See, modern people were so like, I, how I feel in my, I love, I love you in my heart. It's about how I feel in my heart. Fine, good enough. That's, that's obviously a, like a, an important thing. But the Hebrew understanding of chesed is love and faithfulness communicated in action. Let me tell you, on a side note, much more important sometimes to do the act of love and faithfulness even if your heart doesn't feel like it. So God shows up and he shows people chesed, concrete, tangible love and faithfulness and he gives them bread. But Naomi Said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and lifted up their voices and wept. Naomi's encouraging the, the two Moabite daughter-in-laws to just go back. Go back to Moab. You can have a life there. You can find, you you maybe could remarry, but where I'm going, There's nothing for you. There's nothing for you there. Uh, Naomi is often depicted as sort of a bitter, old, cranky woman. And there's a reason for that, is later on in a few verses, she's gonna actually say, don't call me Naomi anymore, call me Mara, call me bitter. So she goes from sweet to bitter. Now, Because of that, people look at her, she's just trying to get rid of these, her two daughter-in-laws, she never liked these in-laws and get rid of them. But that's, that's the wrong understanding of her. First off, she is bitter. She does say to call herself bitter. If you had happened to you, what happened to Naomi, you're gonna be bitter too. Secondly, when she's encouraging them to go back, that's not trying to get rid of them. She's saying, where I'm going, there's nothing, there's nothing for you, there's nothing. Maybe in your in your home you could find another husband, you can have family, you can have children, and there's a future for you. But if you come to Israel, there is no future for Moabite women. And and, and so you have to understand how much of a sacrifice this is because at this time period in the ancient world, in many cultures still today, um, it's, the, it's sort of the opposite where the second you were sort of old enough to care and provide for parents, you would do so. So if Naomi has lost her sons and she has nothing, her best chance of survival is the assistance of these younger adult children. But what she says is, no, no, go, don't worry about me. And they know what that means. That means she's going into a life of destitution, poverty, begging or worse. And so she kissed them and they lift up their voices and they wept. Now keep in mind, there's no social media, there's no cell phone, there's no sending of postcards. When you say goodbye, that goodbye is forever. This woman has lost her husband, her two sons. She is nothing and she's going back in destitution and she tells them to go, knowing that that means I'm never gonna see you again. The last two people on this earth that care for me will be gone. And so they weep. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. We're not going to abandon you. We're not going to leave you in that life alone. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear a son, would you therefore wait till they were grown? It's a little weird and hard to understand. We'll get to that in a moment. Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She wants what's best for him. Go. Go. And she sees her current situation as like, she doesn't understand everything that's going on, but she is at least saying, God's hand is against me. Now, uh, this this kind of in the middle part where she's like, hey, even if I find a husband and get pregnant tonight, are you gonna wait till they're older to get married? It's kind of weird. But one of the things you have to be aware of that's in uh, the world that the Bible is written in, in many ancient cultures and in some cultures still today, there's something called leveret marriage. And what it does is it says that when a woman's husband dies and they had no children, then there was a a way for a brother of the dead husband to marry the woman. Now, super weird and bizarre to us, but you need to know the ancient motivation was that if this did not occur, that woman could be left without care, provision, left in destitution, and the, the line that that family line would cease to be. And so there were often mechanisms like this in ancient cultures to try to bring care and concern. Super bizarre, super weird for us, but that's what she's referring to. So it's impossible. There's not gonna be anything. There's nothing for you if you come with me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So one of the daughters-in-law is going to leave and Ruth is going to stay. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. What Ruth is doing is incredible because she is going to leave her land, her people, and her God's and she is saying, I'm going to be joined with you to such a degree, I'm gonna be among your people, I will live in your land, and I'm going to worship your God, the God of Israel. Now you need to understand that in the ancient Near Eastern world, like land is deeply connected and associated with the gods that you worshiped. So to leave Moab, to leave the place that your parents are buried, to leave that space and fear means you're cutting yourself off to everything and everyone Nevertheless, she says, I'm not going to leave you. I will be with you and I will serve your God. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. Now, it's important to note that because the husband died, Ruth's husband died, she no longer has any commitment. There's no contractual commitment to Naomi. Like the terms of the covenant are fulfilled. We say things like, till death do we part. So once this death has occurred, Naomi, Naomi rightly recognizes. No, go and try to start over the turn. You have nothing left that you owe me. But Ruth stays. So she is going above and beyond what the covenant would demand to show Naomi faithfulness and love and loyalty with concrete action. Does this, does this sound familiar? God shows up and goes above and beyond the terms of the covenant, the contract. He shows up and demonstrates his love and faithfulness with concrete action. Likewise, Ruth is doing that to this woman. So Ruth, I mean, she's an, this is incredible. Now do you see why um, some ancient traditions put the book of Ruth after Proverbs chapter 31? There's a lot going on here. Okay, now these two women will begin their journey back to the promised land. They're gonna go back to Israel and they're gonna come with nothing. And in the time of the judges, you have no idea what's going to happen. You don't know how you will be received because of famine. You don't know which loved ones are still there. You don't know how a Moabite woman is going to be treated. Yellow a Moabite woman who does not have the protection of a husband or a family or a clan, how will this woman be received and treated? They go back with nothing. Now there's an important lesson here that you, you like you have to understand, you have to get this. Um, Depending upon your life and how hard life hits you, it will be incredibly difficult to remain being a faithful Christian if, you don't, if you're not able to integrate this idea. Remember how I mentioned there are things in life that can hurt, cause trial and tribulation? But even in those situations, you're able to, to kind of see the good things, you see how you're growing, you see how the Lord is bringing about good and how this is actually going to make you stronger. Those things work, but there are there are times in life where the the glass just breaks. The bowl, the vase cracks. You can't hold water anymore. Like, and nothing makes sense. You, the ground, your foundation, it's gone. The glasses, the way you see the world, nothing makes sense because the pain and loss of what you experience is just too immense and nothing makes sense around you. So Naomi is going back to the promised land. Why? Because she heard that God has shown up and he's being gracious to his people. So she's orienting herself toward him. She's orienting her being in the direction of God. Now, the reason why this is important is it's not as if things are good in her life. It's not as if things make sense. She even says like, God's against me. She's coming back with anger and bitterness and loss and sorrow and anguish. Nevertheless, this woman still has it in her to say, I've seen that the Lord is over there and he's being gracious to his people. I will go in that direction. And she takes with her her sorrow, her anger, and her bitterness. Because oftentimes, when there's sorrow or anguish or bitterness, or you're angry with God or you doubt his goodness, you look at him in his direction and you say, no. And you walk the other way. And you're in anger and spite and bitterness because of what has happened in your life. The example of the book of Ruth is that with your bitterness, with your sorrow, with your anguish, with the world not making sense, go towards him. Bring with you your hurt, your pain, your sorrow, your anguish, and your bitterness. He's big enough for all of that. Go towards him. You don't go away from him. Because the consequence of you going the other way is far greater than you understand. If you take your bitterness and go the other way, you have no idea how that bitterness will eat you alive it will destroy you from the inside out. And so with your sin, your mistakes, your failures, all your faults, you go in his direction. Now, there's a a traditional Japanese practice of repairing broken bowls called kintsugi. And rather than rejecting or throwing away a broken bowl or a broken vase, what the traditional method does is it glues the bowl back together with something called lacquer that functions as the glue that brings it back together. And then part of the design is that you would take like small pieces of gold or like powder and put it over the lacquer so that now the bowl is not only made whole, but the very cracks are a part of the appearance, What you have to learn and have to be able to do is to say and acknowledge, I'm broken. I am destroyed. I can't even hold water. But in those moments, I can trust my hands to the master. And even in the midst of my cracks, my brokenness, my faults, my failure, my bitterness, my anguish, trust him to begin to put me together. And when he puts you together The cracks, the brokenness are now a feature of the design that's set on display. Now, I don't want to sugarcoat this because there's a version of this that says, Yeah, look at the bad things that have happened to me, and um, now all the bad things are beautiful, and my scars are beautiful. for some stuff in life, that's how it works. Like bad things happen and, and there's such a good that you see brought out of it that you could tell that story with joy and triumph. But I also want to be real and just say what reality says is that there are things in life that break you to such a degree that you'll never look at them and be like, Oh, I'm so happy that that happened. Look at my, look, look at this scar. It's so beautiful. Naomi's never going to be like, I'm glad my two sons died. That's never gonna. You're never, you're never gonna look back and be like, oh, I'm so glad that that happened. So what you have to understand is that God can put you back together. You will hold water again. He will put you back together and the hurts and the pains will be used by him for good and his glory. They will be a part of the very design of the newly created bowl. However, you also have to understand that there are some things that will hit you hard enough that you'll walk with a limp for the rest of your life. You will walk with a limp for the rest of your life. God does not promise this world will be easy. And your hope is this, not that, oh, just give it time, time will heal all things. And I would never say that because I know some of you who've experienced so, loss, great, so great of loss that you know time has not healed that. But you say, God can put me back together and I could be used for his good and his glory. He will put me to, he will hold me fast. I can be restored and used for good and glory again. And the good news is, is that no matter how pain, how painful, no matter how great that loss is, it's not ultimately bleak. You may walk with the limp forever in this life. But there will come a day on the last day where all all wrongs will be righted. All things will be made new. And whatever limp you walked with, whatever pain you carried on this life, God will make it right. Christ himself will bring his healing hands and make it right for you. And so because of that, you can endure present suffering if you orient your being towards him. Now, Where am I getting all of this? This is directly spoken about in the scriptures. In Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, in other words, we're surrounded with people who have endured the pains of life. We're surrounded by them. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us—here's the key—run with endurance the race that is set before us. You run the race with endurance. Endurance presupposes it's going to hurt. Now let me be real. For some people, life has been gr- like every day of your life has been great. There are some people who live incredibly blessed life, like they don't they just there was, never no, there was never a great trial or tribulation. And then there's some of you who have had extremely painful lives. But the point is, no matter what race we've been given, we run the race. And for many of you, it's not a race that's just filled with ease and happiness and celebration. You'll have to learn with, en- run with endurance. But then, what's the direction you're heading? Where, where, you, where are you oriented? Where's the finish line? You run the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, this is key, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, Christ himself ran the race. He endured the cross. Did he look at the cross and say, oh, what a joyful thing I get to go through? No. He endured the cross, despising the shame. He despised the shame, nevertheless endures the cross for what? For the joy set before him. And so in this life, we can get hit. Harder than we ever thought we can get hit. And sometimes we could break. But what you can declare with boldness and confidence is that he can put me back together. And my wounds will be on display and he will use them for his good and his glory and I will be used by the good king once again. And whatever pains I presently endure, I can endure them knowing that there is a joy set before me. So no matter who you are, whatever you've gone through, whatever, you've, whatever suffering you've been, whatever loss you've experienced, if you are in Christ, you have no clue, no idea of the joy that is coming to you. The joy you will experience on the last day will eclipse whatever momentary suffering this world can throw at you. Christ endures the cross for the joy set before him. And so Christians, you endure for the joy set before us. We will know him and we will see him. And we will be completely restored. But the key to this is you orient yourself towards him. And I'm speaking to Christians. I'm not saying like, if you're not a Christian, um, you need to start going to God. Yes, that is true. I believe that. If you're here today, please start doing that. But I'm speaking of Christians who for whatever, in, for whatever reason, hurt, pain, faults, failures, whatever it may be, you've changed your direction just a little bit. And you've allowed the bitterness and the pain and the faults and the failure and the sorrow and the anguish to put you off course. Take it to him. Run to him. He is a good father. He wants to heal you of your sorrow, your anguish, to remove that bitter cup from you. Go towards him, not away. Let's stand as we take communion.